what do, what do most pastors do with their water cups? I always wonder. I do this like weird bend over thing all the time, but uh, I think other pastors have like tables and stuff. But anyways, uh, uh, that's just some of the thoughts going through my head. <laughs> uh, do you guys, with your friend groups, do you guys have like comedic bits that you do over and over again? I don't know. I think this is one of the best parts about having a friend group is to have these comedic bits, uh, these routines, these jokes that you might do over and over again, right? Like, and maybe they laugh the first time, maybe they laugh every time, but usually maybe they don't laugh any of the times. And so uh, me and my friends, at least, and the, the groups of friends I usually find myself in, we have these bits that we're always doing and practicing, you know, on each other. You know, it's kinda, it is Father's Day. It's kind of like how dads always have these dad jokes. Like me and my friends always have these different kinds of bits that we do on each other often. And my best friend, Yvonne, he has this bit that I just love. And it's this bit where if you're eating a meal with him and a person near him says, hey, can you pass me the salt? He'll go, oh, oh you mean the, the, the pepper? And, and then he'll keep putting his hand on everything but the salt. Like he will try to pass you every single item on the table but but what you're asking for. And, and the thing, the brilliance about this bit is it's hilarious when it's not being done to you. And it's, it's infuriating when it's being done uh, to you. And so, and, and I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, what's so infuriating about that bit? And I think the, the infuriating thing is it's infuriating to be misunderstood. Like we as humans hate to be misunderstood. And so this is kind of the brilliance of Yvonne's bit. He is purposely misunderstanding you until you give up. Usually, like, people, like, just get up, walk to it, and grab it, and bring it over. And so, uh, and so it's just, it's a brilliant bit where he uses this kind of human thing about misunderstanding uh, to expose, like, how infuriated we can get by that. But I think if we're honest, the humans in general, it's, <laughs> it's usually... Uh, misunderstandings of, of like a darker nature that, that infuriate us and that we're thinking about and that we're talking about all the time. Like, two kind of on a darker note examples is like, it, it can be so infuriating when someone who's kind of like emotionally immature and you're kind of like in this conflict with them and they are like purposely misunderstanding you in order to like protect themselves or, or, or not bear whatever guilt that, that you might be putting on them like that, that's just like infuriating, right? Or like something I think everybody is saying all the time now is like, the media, it feels like the media is just constantly misunderstanding people so that they can get more clicks or more money or more ad revenue or whatever it might be. And so we kind of live in this culture where not only is my friend doing this bit so showing that misunderstanding each other is infuriating, but as I think about it more, there's all sorts of ways we misunderstand each other and it's really it's infuriating for people. Sometimes I sit down with people, that's all they want to talk about is all the ways humans are misunderstanding each other. And so I think we could all admit human misunderstanding is all over the place. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional. And I think human misunderstanding was what caused John to write 1 John. 
I think this, this letter that we're in, 1 John, I think he wrote it to help clear up some of the misunderstandings around his teaching. So if you don't know who John is, John is, uh, was a disciple of Jesus. And what John began to do is he began to disciple people into the way of Jesus. He began to make disciples. He would evangelize. He would proclaim the good news about Jesus and all that he'd done. And people would begin to follow Jesus. And some believe John even had kind of like this school, maybe like a literal kind of institution that was kind of like this John flavor of discipleship and teaching. And this is where things like the gospel of John come out of this school. And these letters come out of this school that has this Johannian, as the theologians say, flavor uh, of teaching, this John flavor of teaching. And so what it seems like when you read the letter of 1 John, what it seems like was there was all these churches that kind of uh, embraced this Johannian teaching or were started because of this kind of John evangelism that was happening. And then as time went on, it seemed like segments of these churches or parts of these groups began to misunderstand some of the things that John taught through the gospel of John. Right? And remember back then, not only was it written down, but there was probably this kind of like oral teaching that was passed on and memorized, and that's how it was, the Gospel of John was taught as well. And so it seems like there was these groups who were saying, they were taking little things from John and saying, no, actually it means this. And because it means this, we're going to separate. We're going to secede from the rest of the church. Like we're not going to be part of the church. And so I think John says, hey, i got to write First John, to, to clear up these misunderstandings, and, and, and we don't know. Maybe the misunderstandings were intentional, like some kind of devious people wanting power, or maybe they were unintentional, but what we can tell from the letter of First John is John at least thinks whatever these misunderstandings are, they're leading to a destructive way of life in the church. And so he writes First John to, to combat this destructive way of life that has come about where people are maybe twisting some of the teachings or, or, or separating for different reasons. And so, so that's, that's kind of why First John was written, to help clear up some of these problems and things and misunderstandings and, and separations that were happening, okay? And so today's passage in particular, we're going to see that John is trying to clarify some things around sin, around obedience, and, and around love. And he, he's going to... Uh, do that for, for the whole passage today. So here's what we're going to uh, do today. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. That's where we're going to be at in the Bible. If you're new to the church, the Bible is kind of broken up. The Bible is kind of broken up into two parts. There's the Old Testament, which is like what God was doing before Jesus. And there's the New Testament, which is what God is doing in and through Jesus and as Jesus and after Jesus as well. And so that's kind of what, and First John, the, the letter that we're in for the next few weeks over the summer and really to the end of, into the fall, uh, it really is this letter that John wrote after Jesus, trying to help pe people know what it means to follow Jesus. So we're going to be in verses 3 through 11. Gretchen read it wonderfully this morning. And I think this passage, I think, I think you could kind of sum up a lot of what this passage is trying to do or teach in three words. And so the way that we're going to learn this passage today after we go through it and read through it is I'm going to take three words that strike me about this passage, either what this passage is trying to do or something this passage is showing us about God and what he does. And I'm going to, and I'm going to use those three words to each one and take each one one at a time and say, this is what the passage is trying to teach us, okay? And so those three words that we'll look at today are intensity, 
transformation and radicalization. Okay? Intensity, transformation, radicalization. Those three words are going to help us uh, learn the passage today. So before we hop into the text, though, I, do, I just want to say this. We have to remember our faith is rooted in Jesus and his work. The passage today is a little bit more action-oriented. A lot of the Bible is, and that's not a bad thing. But what happens often when we get into these action-oriented passages in the Bible, often people come away with a faith that looks more like a Judeo-Christian moralism, where the whole faith is just about what you do, and the only way you're in the faith is if you do it, rather than realize that we have a faith that's a story about a God who loves his creation and has come to rescue his creation. Like, that's the, that is the root of our faith. And out of responding to the rescue, responding to the love that God has given us, then we, we live out of love. And when we live out of love, then there are so, all sorts of action points for us. But I, I never want the kids who grew up in our church to kind of go away and be like, ah, they just kind of preached the Ten Commandments the whole time. Really, I want you to hear that Jesus loves you through his life, death, and resurrection. He has rescued you. Okay, that's how we become Christians. That's how we are Christians. That's how we stay Christians. Okay, and so even though today in the text we're going to kind of have some of this stuff geared towards our, our behavior and our actions, just know that flows out of what Jesus has already done. Okay, and so I, for me that's important to clarify. Maybe go, why do you even need to clarify that? I don't know. So I just felt like it. So let's hop into the text. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to take another awkward drink and then we'll get started. Maybe I got to get a little table or something. Um, all right, First John chapter 2, verse 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 11 all together. It kind of just goes better all at once, so I'm just going to read it all at once right now. This is what he says. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so right away, John, it, we have to remember last week... Uh, in, the, in the text that Rand preached, he, John is writing this to keep people from sinning. He's saying, Jesus is your atonement. And then it goes into the verses we read today. And so the he that John is talking about there is Jesus and God. Like, honestly, different theologians go, like, it seems like, really, he's, he's saying God is Jesus. <laughs> like, Jesus' commands, God's commands are the same. And it's important that we follow them. And so, so let's use these three words to understand what this passage is trying to teach us. The first word that I said uh, that I want to use is intensity. Because this passage to me, right away, it just comes off really kind of intense. All right? Like, it's, it comes across as like, hey, you're either in or you're out. You either hate or you love. You're either in darkness or you're in light. 
Okay, and, and, and if I'm honest, part of why it strikes me as intense is as I've read this letter of 1 John over the course of my life, I kind of ping-pong between two sides. Like one side is like, man, I love what 1 John is saying. And then the other side is like, I feel really condemned and scared by what John is saying here. And so there's just this intensity in the passage that we have to deal with before we get further. Like why is that intensity there? Why does it sound so intense? What is going on that, that John, like is John just like angry? Like what is happening here that, that the passage comes across so intensely? Uh, and so here's the first thing that we have to realize when it comes to the intensity in this passage is the biblical author is using the rhetoric of his day. The biblical author is using the rhetoric of his day, meaning that he is speaking and teaching in a style that's familiar to the people of that day. He, he's, he's speaking and teaching in, in a style that's familiar to them. Professor Karen Jobes, who's written a great commentary on 1 John, she, she says, this section in particular is probably written in this style of apocalyptic, apocalyptic, where uh, in apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic styles of teaching and speaking, people were often divided into two camps to make strong points about what's right and what's wrong or about what God was going to do at the end of time. And so part of the strong language here is this rhetoric that, that John is using. He's teaching in a style that's familiar to all of those listeners. And so those of you in the room, like me, who are easily condemned, we, we need to realize that John's not making this like blanket rule here like, real Christians never sin, and they always love. Even though it sounds like that a little bit as you're reading it, that's not what he's trying to do. But what he is doing is he's using this kind of rhetorical device to teach that real Christians are ones who are committed to Jesus and his commands and following him and walking like him. And primarily, you see that obedience in how we love one another. Okay, so that, that's kind of, there's this rhetoric being used in the intensity of this language. We talked about that a little bit in the Romans 8 series because Paul does it as well. But there, there's another, I think, point about the intensity of this, this rhetoric, this sort of language here for us uh, to see and to realize. is we, we have to realize that this rhetoric, it is really motivating, though. It is really motivating. I, I, think, uh, I think if John had simply said, hey, uh, Christians try their best to follow Jesus, and sometimes they fail, and, and they just try their best. Like, that's what a Christian does. I think we all would have been like, cool, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm fine, right? And I bet his first listeners would be like, cool, I'm great. I'm doing awesome at this whole thing. But what we remember from verse 1 of chapter 2 is John is writing this so that these churches where these misunderstandings are happening stop sinning, however they are sinning, and we don't quite know exactly the way that they're sinning. And he's writing so that they stop sitting. And this sort of rhetoric, this apocalyptic rhetoric as it's called, it's just a lot more motivating, right? Like you get that John is trying to say love really matters. Obedience to Jesus really matters. You can't really walk away from the passage and go like, uh, you know, we're, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Like, no, it really matters. He's trying to say this is part of our faith. This is foundational to us as Christians. Right? And so there's something to John's rhetoric that is just more motivating than what your 
21st century soft Flagstaff pastor would say. I'm talking about me. Um, both, I'm literally soft and metaphorically soft. Uh, too many laughs. Too many laughs at that. Okay, guys, too many laughs. Uh, and so this, this passage feels intense because John wants it to motivate us. He wants it to wake us up. He wants us to be wake up, uh, woken up to the fact that we need to obey God. He wants us to be committed to loving one another. He wants us to put into practice the love that he talks about in this passage, specifically by loving our brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And so this passage, the rhetoric, it can, be, it can come across strong, but when you know it's this sort of rhetoric being used, you know it's not this kind of blanket statement rule that John's trying to make, but what you do know from the rhetoric and what he's doing is he's trying to motivate us. And he was trying to motivate them, really, to, to love better, to have more unity, all these kinds of things. And so I, I really think what's beautiful about this passage is you can really apply it today, to, to today and let it motivate us today. Like Because this sort of rhetoric is used, it speaks to everybody in the room. It, 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 it challenges the Christian Pharisee types in the room like the religious elite Christians among us, and it challenges the Christian heretics in the room as well. Or you could say like the theologically really conservative or the theologically really liberal, however you, and I'm talking not politically, but how you interpret the Bible. So, so here's how it challenges the, the, the Christian Pharisee or the, the theologically conservative type. This passage clearly says Love is what matters the most. In how you live your life, in how you conduct yourselves, love, your affection for one another, your care for one another, that's what matters the most. So, to the, the Christian Pharisee who often lacks compassion, this passage would say, you need to have compassion. This passage would say, truth without compassion is not love. We, need, we as Christians need to be full of kindness, care, fondness for one another. Our walk as Christians cannot be devoid of love. Often the, the loving types among us and who are often saying, hey, remember this passage, remember we're called to love, often they go, oh, you're compassionate. You have the gift of compassion. I don't think that's a spiritual gift. <laughs> that's part of our identity. We are called to love. So to the, to the Christian Pharisee in the room, this passage says love is what matters most in how we conduct ourselves. But to the more theologically liberal in the room, uh, the, the challenge here for them would be, hey, obeying Jesus matters. Obeying him really matters. As I have a lot of friends who have moved away and walked away from the faith or, or whatever it might be, often... The conversation we get in is like, hey, we don't really need to follow Jesus or obey him or listen to his commands. That's all just stuffy stuff. That's, you know, that's condemning. That's going to make us feel bad, all this kind of stuff. And I just go, that's not what I'm reading in God's word about what it means to follow Jesus. Like we are called to listen to his commands. We are called to obey him. That's part of this thing that we're doing. That's important. That's not what saves us. I would say that's not even what keeps us saved. But it's foundational to how we exist as Christians. 
And so when there are Christians among us who really care about following Jesus and obeying his word, obeying his commands, like I, that's actually a good thing. Now, they might have too much Christian Pharisee in them, and that's a different conversation. And so I, I think this passage, it can really just speak to everybody in the room. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, I obviously did the poles of the spectrum, but it, it should motivate all of us. The passage is intense because it wants to motivate us into love and into obedience. Right? And so, again, those in the room who, who feel condemned very often, who easily find themselves feeling condemned, especially if you read a passage like this, remember, again, this is the rhetoric, but then just a verse ago in verse 2, John made sure to start off this whole thing by saying, hey, Jesus is our atonement which is another way of saying to the condemned in the room, you can't atone for yourselves, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Only Jesus can, 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 can atone you. You're feeling condemned because you fall short because everybody falls short. Only Jesus can lift us up and rescue us in this way and atone for us. And so we have to realize that this passage, it's intense. There's an intensity to it because the goal of this passage is to motivate all of us to dive deeper into love and deeper into obedience, obeying God and obeying Jesus. And, and the reason I'm making the distinction there, I believe Jesus is God, but uh, for those of us, what does it mean to believe his commands in the Old Testament? I think we're called to believe that in certain ways. That's a complicated thing as well, but uh, it's a good clarification for us as well. Because that's what the New Testament authors did too. They would say, hey, how does the Old Testament speak to how we're called to obey him as well? So probably just confused you guys, but... Um, that's all right. Uh, so, this passage is intense. Let it motivate you rather than condemn you, all right? So, let's go to the second word. The second word that I want to use to teach this passage is the word transformation. Transformation. We here, if you trust in Jesus, we are a people rooted in the love of God. The gospel, the good news about what God has done in history, is a story about God, a God who loves his people, who loves his creation, and then he works his love into creation by sending his son to bring about God's kingdom and to take on sin's penalty. We're really, that's just a story of love. It's this love story that we're all rooted in and it should shape us. And one of my favorite things as a human is to just try to sit in that love story, to sit in the love of God, to meditate on the love of God, to think about the love of God, to let the Holy Spirit and to just kind of beg the Holy Spirit to, to work the reality of God's love deep into my brain. Like that, that, These are things that I love to do and try to do as a Christian. That being said, as much as God's love and the gospel is a story about God's love as his affection for us, there seems to be in this passage another purpose to God's love. God's love should transform you. Specifically, God's love should transform you into a person that loves. This is why verse 5 in the section that we're in just said, the love of God is made complete. God's love has a goal to transform us, to make us different, to make us people that love. This is why verses 9 and 10 apply the idea of God's love being made complete, specifically in how we love the family of God. And so God's love is not just 
This distant idea about his affection that we ruminate on, it is at least that. But God's love is this active agent that changes us, that changes our very hearts, that changes how we exist in the world, the very way that we live life. God's love should be transformative. God's love should transform us. In this passage, you really see two ways that God's love should transform us. It should transform us into a people that obey God by listening to him and his son's commands. And it should transform us into a people that love others. Even specifically, when it says brother or sister there, it's, it's talking about the household of God. Which it's not saying we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But there must have been something going on in the Johannian churches that there was separation or hate or despising or detesting of one another. And so John is specifically applying this idea of God's love transforming us towards how we love one another in here. God's love should transform us. God's love gets to us by no work of our own. But once God's love has gotten to us, it doesn't just stagnate. It doesn't just stay there. It doesn't just make us focused on ourselves. God's love transforms us into obeyers and people lovers. I think, I think so often in the church when we think about God's love transforming us, and, or really when we think about obedience, often in the church how obedience uh, gets presented is like ah, this dutiful thing. But when you look at obedience in the Bible, it's much more like looking at someone who's been transformed by love. It's much more like uh, one lover looking to please the other. Right? When, when someone is in love, they look for ways to love that person. Right? They, they write them love letters. They find out what that person likes. They find out what that person likes to do. And then they try to... Uh, take them on dates doing those things. They try to spend time with them doing those things to try to buy them gifts of the things that they like. And they do that because of their love for that person. Often, those things that the person are, is doing are not things that they themselves actually like to do or gifts they themselves want, but because of their love for that person, they find themselves doing those things and giving those sorts of gifts. God's love should so, should so transform us that obedience becomes like love. Obedience for, for us becomes like wanting to please someone we love. That's how it should be between us and God. That's what really, really how we should look at and consider obedience. Our, our obedience is actually our love being acted out because we realize we've received the love of God. And John says that will be seen primarily in the form of loving other people. It's just interesting. God's love should be transforming us. We should allow God's love to transform us and change us. And in fact, I think what this passage is saying is that's part of how we know if we're truly understanding the gospel and believing and trusting in Jesus. Is if his love is transforming us into obeyers and people lovers. And really, obeying God is being a people lover. Like our obedience is seen in how we love one another. And so God's love turns us into loving people. It should transform us that way. Okay? Which brings me to this last word. 
that I want to use to draw out what this passage is teaching. And the word is radicalization. Radicalization. Uh, when someone, everybody gets nervous when a pastor uses that word, and that's fair. That's fair, honestly. Um, <laughs> radicalization. So when someone's been radicalized uh, in their culture, it means they've gone from like one place of believing something that was more status quo in society, more average, less dangerous, less changing, to something that's more extreme in their society. So that's what, when someone's been radicalized, that's, that's what's happened to them. They've gone from kind of status quo, average, doesn't really change much, to probably changes things in big ways, or at the very least is very different than what the rest of uh, their culture or society believes. That's someone that's been radicalized. So if you think about the, the civil rights movement, a lot of people were radicalized into Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for love and justice and nonviolence. Like they, these were radical ways of thinking. Just read a history book and you could see that, when, that these were radical ways of thinking for the status quo of society. And often those with Martin Luther King Jr. or he himself were labeled as radicals because of how much they cared about love and, and justice and nonviolence specifically. On the other side, kind of, maybe not quite the other side, but on another part of the civil rights movement, you have Malcolm X, where a lot of people were radicalized to Malcolm X and his vision for justice as well, but it was a bit more violent. And, and so people were being radicalized that way. And so that's what radicalization looks like. That's what it looks like in society. Here's what I think about this passage. If you read it, and you really think, it's the word of God, like I do. This passage will radicalize you. This passage pushes on the status quo of Christian love in America. I think the status quo of Christian love in America says, do your best, but you know, it, it's fine if you really only hang out with, with the Christians that are easiest for you to hang out with. This passage says, if there are Christians that you detest, that's actually another way to translate hate there, that you detest, that you, that you hate. This passage says, that, that's not God's love or light in you. Us Protestants really need to hear this because <laughs> we've got like four million denominations. <laughs> and we really do. Some of us, that's what we've inherited, of course. But I, I think there's something here that, that we could really hear as Protestants. Karen Jobes, uh, she puts it this way uh, when she's talking about this passage. She, she says, this passage seems to be saying the quality of our interpersonal relationships with one another is louder than our verbal witness. She thinks that's what it's saying. Now, and I, I hate to read quotes like that because none of y'all are talking about Jesus to people and you need to be, Okay. But I just think there's something to what she's saying. Remember, John was the one who watched Jesus wash all of their feet, wash his own feet, and then Jesus said, when the world sees how you love one another, then they'll know that you're mine, that they'll know you're the Jesus people. There is something about our witness of love that points to God, points to Jesus, sometimes far louder than our verbal witness. Again, we're, we're called 
to love all people. Jesus makes that clear. I can read you all kinds of passages on that. But something was going on in that church and in that time and in the churches around there where they needed to be reminded that they were called to love one another. That they were called to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because remember, God doesn't give us a new religion. He gives us a new family. He brings us in and puts us in a new family. So, if that's what this passage is saying, and you really believe it, this will radicalize you. You are not going to be able to fit in to the status quo of society, and you're not going to be able to fit into the status quo of Christian culture. Like You just won't, because this passage should radicalize us because it's such a huge vision for love. Okay, I want, to, I want to apply this passage in a dangerous-for-me way. Um, and I say dangerous-for-me because it's the sort of application that um, t- will probably offend everybody in the room. And uh, you go, why even use that then? Because it's, it's a juicy application, okay? Like, it's, like sometimes you're like, I can't think of a better one, right? And so I got to do it. And so if you're mad, like, you know, you, you have a journal. Like, you can write in it. And so... Uh, so I want to talk about 2020. I don't know if you remember COVID. It was this thing that happened in 2020. I want to specifically, I want to specifically talk about masks. I want to talk about masks three years late. And so there was a divide that happened in America and in churches in America and in our church too over masks. You have the anti-mask crowd. I'm going to decide both sides of the divide. You have the anti-mask crowd, which the spectrum for the anti-mask crowd was like annoyed by masks to thinking it was like government overreach and control. So that was like the anti-mask crowd. I think that's a fair way to represent them. I'll show you emails if you need to. Um, The other side of the crowd was like the pro-mask crowd. And the pro-mask crowd, they just wanted to protect themselves, but they also wanted to protect their neighbor. They saw the, the, like, the societal health benefit if everybody participated in it. And, and they often said, hey, wearing a mask is a great way for me to love my neighbor. And, and I think that's kind of the gist of, of the pro-mask side. And they wanted to protect themselves, too, for all sorts of reasons, because of their careers and different things and what they're saying, but they wanted to protect others. And the reason this is such a juicy thing to bring up is because American churches were, were so split over this, not just emotionally and philosophically and ideologically, but American churches were literally splitting over this. Like, um, I heard all sorts of stories about American churches just splitting in half, starting new churches over this. I heard about pastors getting fired over their stance on masks. And then let's personalize a little bit. In our church, it created a fair amount of tension. It, you could say it created a fair amount of detesting one another. And I think all across America, you see people left their churches on both sides over it. And, and to be clear, I, I'm never up here trying to guilt you into staying out of church. If you've got to leave our church, leave the church. Like, that's totally fine. But I think that's, that little symptom there sometimes shows well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. I'm not concerned with people leaving churches, finding new churches. There's lots of good reasons, lots of bad reasons to do those things. 
I'm just more concerned with how we love each other in those moments. I'm, I'm more concerned with how we love each other through things like that. And so part of me wonders as I read this passage, if before 2020, if we had been more radicalized by love, radicalized by this passage, would there have been less division? Imagine if somehow I could make every American Christian in America like believe this passage. I think they would have been radicalized, and I think that whole mask thing would have went differently. I think there wouldn't have been divide and split over it. Just imagine if, if both sides have been more radicalized by love. And to be clear, I feel like our church, for the most part, did a great job with this. But imagine with me if both sides were a little bit more radicalized by love. Let's take the anti-maskers. Say that they had, what if they had been more radicalized by love in that? Would they then have been able to see that their pro-mask brothers and sisters were understandably scared and concerned and hurting and even had some good evidence for the use of masks? I know, that's crazy. And then what if those anti-maskers said to themselves, you know what, I hate it but I will wear one for the rest of my life if it means loving my brother or sister in Christ. Which might sound extreme, which might sound crazy, but one time this guy named Timothy got circumcised so he could talk to Jewish people about Jesus. Okay, I'm not promoting that necessarily, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, there's been extreme measures Christians have taken. But I, I, I want to offend everybody, not just the anti-masters, so I wonder... I wonder if our pro-mask friends, I wonder if they had been radicalized by love, I wonder if for them, if instead of retreating and becoming disillusioned with the anti-mask Christians, I wonder if they said, okay, I'm going to press into love by saying, you know what, okay, I'm not going to go up, go to maskless events, but I'm going to find ways somehow to stay connected. I'm going to patiently, while I stay connected, bang the drum of how wearing a mask is a good witness that loves our neighbor. And I'm going to be vulnerable enough to let them know that how their non-mask wearing and ideologies is hurting me and hurting my fears and growing my fears. That would be radical. That would be far beyond the status quo of Christian love. But I think that if we read this passage and we allow it to radicalize us, those are the sort of things that could have happened in 2020 had we been radicalized by love. And I want to be, because I really just want to punish myself, I, I want to be honest about this situation in particular. I was really saddened by how often the anti-maskers uh, made it hard for the pro-maskers. There was very little understanding. There was very little care. It was kind of like you could literally, this is you could sit in that section of the auditorium. You could just not come to church. You could watch live stream. And there just seemed, from the anti-mass side of things, it just seemed like there was no desire for even the, the, the sacrifice of uh, putting a cloth up to our mouths. And so I... I uh, when I, often when I heard the anti-maskers, there was just almost this detestment for the pro-maskers 
And I think some of the pro-maskers were pretty mean, especially to me. And so uh, there, there's something there, too, going like, man, this was such a hard time in our history. We're like, where was the grace? But I feel like a lot of our pro-mask people were hurt because they just felt like they weren't worth sacrificing for. And then they read a passage like this, and they go, where's real Christianity? Does it exist? And so I, maybe I shouldn't use that as an example, but like I said, it's juicy. And it's juicy because it is a time in our life where the church was divided and split in all sorts of ways. And it's a time in our life where often we were more committed to our version of being right than to love. And I want us to be a church that is radicalized by love and radically committed to love. Even through a crazy thing like that. Even through differences of opinion like that. And so I, I hope that this passage could radicalize us. I wish it had radicalized all of American Christians before 2020. So I wonder how that would have changed, how that went. I wonder what kind of witness that would have been to the world. Imagine that. The whole nation divided on this thing. But then everybody was like, yeah, but my, this church I know, they, like, they figured out how to love one another through it. Imagine that. So... The whole point of today's sermon, if you didn't get it, is that sin has come into our midst and it's done destructive things to our community. And God's love would cause us to obey him, which is primarily seen in how we love one another. That's the whole sermon in the sentence. So go and love. So church, may we allow these intense words to motivate us. May we realize God's love has transformed us, and may we be radicalized by his vision for love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. God, right away, I just, if, if there was too much of me, especially in that last illustration, God, I just pray we all forget the, that part. But God, I, I pray that we understand the love you have for us so mightily that we are transformed by your love, that we are radicalized by your love, that we are motivated to obey you and to love others. God, I think you want to do all of those things in all of us for, our, for the totality of our lives as Christians. And so, God, I pray that, that, that we don't hamper or quench the Spirit from, from doing that in us. And so, God, I don't know what this means. I don't know if there's repenting some of us need to do. I don't know if there's a turning to you and understanding your love that some of us need to do. I don't know if there's some of us just that need to be assured of your love, like this passage uh, wants to create an assurance in us. Uh, but whatever it is, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would do that in us. So, God, we, we love you. We need you to do this thing well. We truly need your spirit living in us, guiding us. And so help us to be obeyers and lovers. Amen.